You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Kirk, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. We had two interviews released last week because we finally salvaged Dr. Wickham's episode. It was still like not the greatest audio quality we've ever put out, but shout out to the homie Rich Ryan for giving us the hookup on a program that salvaged it. This was a, an episode where we were missing over an hour of his audio and we salvaged it. So very happy to put that out for you guys last week. Brought it back from the dead, but we didn't do a training Tuesday, so we didn't really catch up in two weeks. It's been like two weeks. No. Yeah. So here we are, training Tuesday. I want to kick off with a long message we got from an athlete. Will you, will you grant me this time to read a novel to you? Yes, uh, granted. Okay. So it's two questions. And some compliments, which goes a long way with us. Are you going to read the name of the person or is this not, you know, we go back and forth on this. I'm not going to. Okay. Team Bracken. I feel if it comes to me. Okay. They know. All right. We'll say first name, Tony. Hey, Tony. Hey guys, wanted to say thanks again. I strung together some more of your advice and last weekend hit my longest run ever at 88 miles. Uh, which that wasn't the number I was expecting to hear. Yeah. Wow. I was trying to run 100, but DNF'd for the first time. I was struggling with fatigue and I hit my head. I had two questions coming out of the experience. One you might not have an answer to and one I'm here to hear your opinion on. First, I was struggling so much with fatigue to the point I was afraid I'd fall asleep while walking. Should I try to run faster and finish the race before this point, or should I slow down and conserve my energy to better prepare for the running after 24 hours? For reference, I dropped at 23 hours. Second part, since this was still my longest run ever, I was in uncharted territory muscle-wise. My ankles were killing me after 75 miles. Every muscle or ligament all around my ankles were burning. What can you recommend for exercises or running workouts to bulletproof all the muscles and tissue around my ankles? Thank you. Hmm. How come this one jumped out at you? Because we have a lot of questions still to answer. Well, because he has messaged in the past. He asked about an ultra fuel plan, mm. asked about training advice. He had messaged a few times, and this was the follow-up to this. He took some of the podcast advice and our mm. offline advice and went after 100. 100 miles is one of those things that sounds so cool to do. And then people set out to actually do it and realize that it's a preposterous task. Absolutely. Like 100 miles in a week is a huge achievement. And so this popped to me as someone just went for it on a huge scale and they encountered some real issues along the way mm -hmm. while doing well. Yeah, the novelty wears off at some point there in the middle and then it becomes mm -hmm. no fun, no matter how good or tenured you are. And he says, I was dealing with so much fatigue by mile 75. And it's like, well, you're almost there. Like you're three quarters of the way there. It's mile 75. Hang on. If somebody looked you in the eyes and said, okay, you have 20, you have to go run 25 miles right now, fresh, let alone with 75 miles already under your belt. Like, sure, it sounds like you're almost there, but miles become exponentially drawn out at that point in a race. So um, yeah. when the piano lands on your back, it crushes you eventually. So 
Um, I'm surprised he made to mile 88, sounding like that fatigue. Another 12 miles under that duress, or 13 miles, math. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult to put in perspective how long these races are. But to try to do that, you've run ultras, mm-hmm. I've run ultras. What time remaining on the clock, you, using your pace guesstimation, what time remaining makes you feel like, oh, I'm getting there, I'm almost done in the ultras you've ran? Because I have a very specific, like two points in time jump out at me in ultra races. Well, I will say I've only gone 37 miles, my longest. Um, that was a solo okay. effort. And then I've done 250Ks. Um, for me, it's so different. I start feeling that way about an hour and a half out, maybe an hour and a half, roughly 90 minutes. I can start to see the light. So let's just, let's leave it at that. What about you? Yeah. I would say you start to see the light when it's definitely under two hours to go and suddenly you get an hour or less and you're like, I am almost done. This is like, it's in the books. It's already pretty much done. At the end of an ultra, a 100 miler, you are lucky to be moving at, let's say a 12 minute mile pace, maybe 15, which means you don't even hit that point until you're four miles from the finish, (laughs) right? You don't even hit the, I think the work's done until 96 and you don't hit that we're really almost done here until about 94. So you have to run 90 plus miles to even start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, from a distance perspective, you might get it a little earlier, but the time is so skewed that it's hard to really comprehend what you're going to go through until you get there. Yeah. I don't envy that feeling, which I personally have never felt. Um, I know what the last... I've not done a hundred. Five miles of my thirty-seven miler felt like, and I pretty much raced it, and it was, mm-hmm. it was inevitably awful, and I only had to go thirty-seven. And I use the word only in comparison to this hundred miler. Obviously, I'm not minimalizing that right. effort, but um, okay. So what uh, what is your advice for this gentleman? What Tony? What do you got for him then? Well, we'll start with the fatigue, like the sleep, the falling asleep while moving piece. Mm -hmm. I do not think that going any easier early on will help you stay cognizant later on. Time is time. If you're not used to that, whether you're working at a four out of 10 or a five out of 10, if by 23 hours you're falling asleep, you're not going to buy yourself extra hours. So I don't think that's the key. I think one key is to get yourself fit enough to move faster, but the second key that we've seen is the power of a five minute or 10 minute ultra nap mm-hmm. is almost impossible to calculate. There are people that are new individuals after five minutes of sleep during an ultra. Yep. Yep. I, for me, it would be absolutely like at some point, like even if it's you lay down, right? You're so tired. You could fall asleep. Like most likely you will lay down on the side of the trail and be asleep within minutes. Probably, you know, if you're sleepwalking mm-hmm. or sleep running, and you hear the best described this, by the way, for those of you listening, you'll hear a Courtney DeWalter be like, I was so yeah. tired, I thought I'd fall asleep while on my feet. Like, this happens to even the best. So it's not like, and she has. Has she fallen asleep and bit it? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it was out in Utah. I could be wrong about which one. It was like a 240 mile race or something like that. <laughs> mm. Is when she finally just Moab. fell again because she had dozed off. She's like, I need five, wake me up in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I do recall that. It might have been Moab too. 
200 or 240 or something. But anyways, maybe it was Moab. So it's common thing for people to do. So you're not like a loser a week if it's something that has to happen in the middle of an ultra. Taking even a 20-minute breather from your effort may still, I mean, maybe it would have helped you finish, I hate to say it. Maybe it would have. So there alone, I agree with you. And then Mm. the second thing, if I were to go and do a 100-mile ultra, and maybe you did this, Tony, I don't know, but um, as awful as it is, I would I would caffeine taper and then caffeine for me it would it's such a powerful stimulant that I would be 2 weeks off caffeine I would start my race without caffeine and then when those moments hit that first like I would go as long as possible until I start getting snoozy or obviously my performance is really hindered and I would pop 2 300 milligrams of caffeine And the way that will hit you in that moment, yes, you're going to have all the damage in your legs and your ankles are still going to hurt. Don't get me wrong. And your body is going to just be fighting you. But from a cognition standpoint, if you can stay alert and awake, I just think there's such a powerful tool to that. Saving it till you desperately need it may prolong that feeling for another Mm -hmm. three hours. And that would be through the finish for you in that case. So, and maybe you already did this, but like, it's something that I think it's very overlooked in, in these extreme endurance events. And so, um, without me doing it personally, that would be my approach for a hundred. It's exactly where I was going to go with it. There are so many ways you can stimulate yourself to pep yourself up. I mean, as simple as chewing minty gum or, you know, chewing on like, if you can handle it like a mint leaf or something mm-hmm. like that, or even smelling salts. Not that that's step number one, but if you're to the point where you're like, I don't know if I'm here or not, smelling salts will let you know real quick. So back, if you think back to the interview we had with Cassie, uh, who was really struggling with fatigue during her pregnancy, she and I had the rule where if you are sitting here and thinking, I am just so tired, I can't do this workout. We did the rule where, all right, lay down, put your phone away and you have five minutes to fall asleep. And if you fall asleep in five minutes or less, you needed the sleep more than you needed the workout in that moment. And then you can get your workout later, maybe. But if you're not asleep in five minutes, you're not desperately in need of sleep. And so now you have to get up and go. And you can use that rule in an ultra. Mm. All right. I'm laying down right here on the side of the trail. I set my timer. I have five minutes to be asleep. If you're not asleep in five minutes, get up, slam some beta alanine or caffeine, wake yourself up and get moving. But if you're sleeping five, then you have your pacer or crew or your watch or whatever wake you up in somewhere between five and 20 minutes. And now you've just bought a second lease on life. Yep. I mean, and what I mean, I guess the alarm thing is tricky. If you're out there alone and you're like, I just need to sleep and you let yourself like you could come back to yeah. like two hours later and be like, oh, shit. Now I'm not even gonna hit the cutoff. That would be <laughs> scary. So you would have to have an alarm plan. I don't know how that would work if you were alone. I have to think that yeah. one through a little bit because I could see or sleep sitting up or something. Yeah. Anyways, but you might have to wait till an aid station mm. so that you can have people there to to save your life <laughs> instead of drifting off in the cold <laughs> on the side of the trail somewhere. Uh, but the foot thing, the ankle thing. That's really, really common. A lot of people s- suffer with swelling of the feet throughout long events and just the impact you're not used to. This is the place where having targeted targeted days of I'm not sitting down throughout the day and I'm doing a medium long run at the end of the day. That's super important in this kind of thing. Standing desks, being on your feet more, just getting used to it in like barefoot or minimal shoes throughout the day. That is a tactic for ultras. That's not something I'm telling a 5K athlete. That's something I'm telling a, a high rocks athlete, 
But it's something I'm telling a hundred mile athlete is you have to do those tips and tricks. You don't have to train every day at night after being on your feet all day, but I would treat it like quality days. A couple times a week, I would. Uh, do you think there's any place for purposeful gym work or uh, let's call it prehab stuff? Yes. You do? Yes. I go back and forth on it. I, th- I would do all the piddly crap. Yeah. All of it. I mean, it can't. It's only going to help. It's just like when your foot slaps can't the hurt. ground for 24 hours straight, like that impact is like, you're not going to duplicate yeah. that in the gym. You're not going to replicate that little you know, shifting and pivoting of your ankle forward, backward, the flexion, the, you know, pronation and soup and all that stuff that happens constantly on the trails. I like, I think your idea of like, Hey, Mm -hmm. or I'm going to start my day with a, a three hour long run on Saturday. And then like part of my training, I'm not going to go sit on the couch and then relax the rest of the day. Like it's yard work and it's going to the Mm -hmm. mall with my wife and it's, and it's like, I haven't sat since I finished my run other than to maybe fuel up or drive home. And like, I think you're, there's probably as much power to that than anything. Just be on your feet, like tie yourself out, mm-hmm. get used to it. I like that idea. Yeah. Because your next one is not going to be as bad as your first one, which means you just had to get it. You had to get used to it. But the gym, I, I, I support the gym work because no, it's not going to help you handle like it doesn't replace being on feet for 24 hours, but every micro twitch throughout the day, every ankle roll, every little misstep on the trail It'll help you handle every one of those better Mm -hmm. because you'll have better mobility, flexibility, and strength in your feet and ankles, and thus the cumulative effect will be less. So I think you pair the two together, but there's no way around it. There's no shortcut to ultras. Like there are hacks to get faster through anaerobic work or double threshold or VO2 mat. Like that doesn't exist for ultras. It's just time and stuff. I think one of the coolest things about ultra, like, Ultra endurance events, I don't even really mean a 50K. I mean, maybe like 50 miles and more, 100K and more up to the 100 mile. Is I think the excitement is the mystery, right? Like, I actually don't Mm -hmm. know what is going to happen to me after I'm out there for 12 hours. I I don't know. Like, what my even if you've done them before, like, I don't know what I'm going to get this time. What is my brain and body going to do? All these little tips and tricks and experiments. And it's like the the pursuit of the unknown. And even if you're tenured, it still probably feels a bit like that. And so I can see the appeal. But I mean, mm-hmm. who nails their first ultra? Very, very few people. Very few people. The amount of people, the amount of things you learn already and takeaways, I'm sure are vast. But 88 miles, pretty good clip. And I don't, did this person do this on their own? Did they hit? I don't know what happened. I assume this was a race. They didn't say. Huh. All right. Yeah, they didn't say. Tip of the hat. No clarity you. on that. But anyway, congratulations, Tony. And you have some stuff you can improve for next time. Only 88 miles, Tony. Come on. If there is a next time. Oh, there will be a next time. That's wild. Um, My longest time on feet was seven hours and 40 minutes. At uh, the Tennessee Mile? That. Uh, no, that was six both years. Uh, in Killington, one year, 740 was the longest I went. And obviously, when you have a duration to fill, you fill it with the intensity that's appropriate. I wouldn't have kept that intensity to go 24. Those are long days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those mm-hmm. are really long days. But somewhere around 10 hours, I think, it really shifts. Maybe 12 hours from I'm racing with a certain type of intensity to it doesn't matter what I did earlier than this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be destroyed in a few hours and I can't do anything about it. Yep. And it's easy to say like, hey, go faster. Like, just go faster then. Then it'd be funny. You're like, huh, you don't know what my legs felt like. The fact that I was even on them still was a win. 
every pain, every step was so right. painful. I was walking gingerly or running gingerly. I'd go faster. Like you're so up your own beehole. You don't even know your tuck. Anyways, let's, uh, <clears throat> I haven't said beehole in a while. Um, years maybe. So let's unpack really quick. Uh, it almost made me more uncomfortable than if you had said butthole. Yeah. It made me uncomfortable too. It felt weird. Um, no beehole. I'm sticking with it. Uh, let's unpack NCAAs really quick. And I want to preface this. So, um, the NCAA division, well, all divisions, but uh, national cross country championships for this weekend. Um, gosh, they were fantastic races to watch. You can go on YouTube; they're on the NCAA YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And we actually interviewed, and it's coming up this Friday. But we interviewed a legend from NAU, Ron Mann, and then uh, NCAA runner-up in cross country and professional runner for Hoka, Matt Baxter. And we had the interview in pocket. And we were hoping, honestly, a little bit that NAU, uh, Matt Baxter's an NAU alum as well, that NAU would win the men and women's side. So we chose not to release. Can I pause you right now? If you haven't watched and you don't want a spoiler, fast forward like five to 10 (laughs) minutes and then listen again because we're about to spoil things. My bad. Sorry. Okay. Well, whatever. Too bad, guys. And so Bracken sort of approached me with the idea and said, hey, let's wait to release this episode in case NAU pulls this off and wins both the men's and women's races. After just talking, they released a book called uh, Running Up the Mountain. We have a great conversation with them. Anyways, so we were secretly hoping to make it work. NAU didn't win either race. Our grand plan didn't come together. I think we're the ones who jinxed it by holding out the episode. We're releasing it Friday, and it's a great conversation. But mm-hmm. anyways, I felt more invested in the NCAAs, just hoping that NAU would win both sides after chatting with those two people. So what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that it was the most impressive team victory I've ever seen on the women's side. And when we were talking with Ron Mann, who is a legend of the coaching sport, he and Matt Baxter both made the comment that people are going to have to run selflessly and it's really a team race in cross country. And we were saying, how do you explain that to someone on the outside who would just say, listen, it's your fastest people run their fastest and you that's your best way of doing it. It doesn't make sense. And they explained it and you have to listen to the episode to find out. But NC State proved what they were saying. NC State had their second runner injured and declared ineligible for the race the week of the race, like three days out. And she took third place individually last year in the meet. Mm-hmm. So they lost the third best on paper runner in the nation and instantly went to afterthought for the title contention and they won the meet by one point over nau which means they replaced their second runner with their sixth runner and still won the meet it was just the the most incredible performance of an all-around team just staying on it and everyone doing their part and overperforming that i've ever seen especially since caitlin tui didn't take first or second or third or fourth Mm -hmm. In no world did anyone think she'd take worse than second. And she had her lowest finish in years in cross country, and the team still won. Mm. It was astounding. She took fifth and was back as far as 11th uh, with like a K to go and pounded home. I watched her kick past a few people in the last quarter mile. And even though Caitlin Tui didn't win or take second, as she was probably hoping, um, she can count at least probably four or five what I call kills in the last K or two that they won by one point. They beat NAU by one point, 
which is as close of a margin of victory as you can get, of course, other than going to the tiebreaker. And so it was impressive. And there was some rumors of Caitlin Tui maybe being a little under the weather and not feeling like herself is what I kind of saw after the fact. Um, yeah, she got sick, actually sick. Like sick, yeah, like I, the fact that she ran as well as she did. But I don't think most that never did cross-country scoring type racing in their career, like replacing your second best runner who finishes seconds behind Tui often in most of these cross-country races. She's fantastic. You'll see Tui, and then you'll see, what's her name? The woman who couldn't race? It's slipping me right now. Caitlin Chamil. Chamil. Um, anyways, replacing your set. Kelsey. 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 Um, replacing your second runner, just gone, and having to rely now not on your sixth runner can be as much as 30, 40, 50 point swings. And so it's very unlikely that they were going to overcome this and they knew that and somehow pulled it off. And at the same time, I didn't dissect NAU's performances down the line. And if they underperformed or they had their, they had a day that they should be proud of and they did just NC state rose to the occasion. I didn't dissect that. Did you? Nope. Me either. No, I didn't go back afterwards. I just went right to watching the men's and then right from there to watching some high rocks. It was a great day. Now we got the men's race. And in the men's race, uh, I would say actually probably the most impressive team performance is by Oklahoma State, who scored like 48 points or something ridiculous. Mm -hmm. When we won the national championships in cross country, Division Three, 2001, 2002, we scored 62 points, okay? We and we want the second place team was 122. We almost halved second place, and it was the fourth lowest score in NCAA Division Three history. And you know, NCAA had been going on Division Three, I don't know, 40 years or so, whatever it was. 62 points got us the fourth lowest score in NCAA Division Three history. I don't know how low the lowest Division One score is by any team, but they scored in the 40s, which is unbelievable. We have to look that up. I don't know the best score. Do you? Yeah. In history? No, I don't. Hmm. I don't know. Anyways, it was supposed to be a battle, like a coin flip between NAU and Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma State absolutely obliterated everybody. Wasn't even close. Nope. Not close. Mm -hmm. And the racing, like watching the turnover and the speed, like it's really hard to appreciate sometimes, but I felt like however this course laid out and the camera work, like you could see the speed. And you can't often do that when you watch running. I don't know if you picked up on that, but it was like, look at these guys and these girls running. It's unbelievable. Did you pick up on it like more than normal? Yeah. At least I did. The, just across the board, everyone's so fast. Parker Valby came through 5K at like 1544. <laughs> uh, That's two seconds off my road PR that I kicked all the way in to get. And she still has another K to go. Like these these people are incredible. Yeah, I think the men through 8K were 22.55 through 8K. I don't know what pace does it even come out to, but it's a rolling hill course. So it's just like, what does 22.55 yeah, come out to? I think they were even quicker than that through. Yeah, 4.35 pace. 4 but it was 22-something. Unbelievable. It was gross. Gross. Watch. But this was nostalgic for me as well because you don't know this, but my very first D1 invitational cross-country race was at University of Virginia on that course. Oh, did not know. So young 18-year-old Bracken lined up in between UVA and Duke, and I looked left and right during our strides right before the race and just realized I am so far out of my depth. And the first mile, is, as you could see, is pretty downhill. Mm -hmm. And I was like fifth from last in two of the five were my teammates. And then the course gets hit, and they didn't show it. I mean, they showed some of the hills on course, but the athletes didn't show how hilly it was. I remember crawling my pace 
up the final two hills and you had people closing in like 250 for their final kilometer. I was running like 620 pace, my final <laughs> kilometer there. And they're running like 430. It was just ridiculous, but it was, it was cool to see like, that's where my college running career began was on that course. Huh. It was this huge rude awakening. And then to see the, like the top of the food chain doing the same thing on the same course at an entire universe difference of performance level is pretty cool. Like every turn, I was like, I remember that. I felt terrible there. <laughs> Arms pumping up those hills, knees driving, like just gritty racing in the best yeah. part. And then we'll, we'll stop lushing over, gushing over the NCAAs. But um, it wasn't, people went out and raced. It wasn't pack racing. It wasn't like, let's sit and wait for something to break open. And then it breaks open a 2K before the finish. It was like, as soon as the gun went off, the race was on. So the field strung out. Things got real very quickly. And it became like, yeah. it just became like as pure as cross country should be. It wasn't a sit and kick race. It was, you know, pretty soon it was down to a group of 10 and then six and then four and then two. And then it was just like the way you want to see it. At least I enjoyed watching it that way. The pain on their face, the grimaces through the last K just freaking awesome people falling at the finish line. Again, there was one yeah. man who literally just laid on his back and didn't move. Like they, his head's hanging. They're carrying him off course. Like, like I gotta, we gotta follow up and see if this guy's okay. Like there's just the, I forget that finishing line at the end. That was the worst. Go ahead. That was the worst injured person carry I've ever watched happen. It was horrible. First person tried to grab him by the back of his head while the other one had him by his feet. And the next person picked him up by his wrists and he's just flopping like he was on a spit. Like this, this is, this is really, really not great. No, but just the level of like the level of push and not that it, I like seeing athletes wobbling and then falling and crawling across the finish line, but I counted like, mm -hmm. I don't know, six. Maybe one person just swerved into the crowd, never came back out in the final stretch. Just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Anyways, it's just a level of push. If you ever wonder if you're working hard enough, just go watch these guys. You realize there's levels to everything. And these people figured out how to use every ounce of what they have. And so go watch it. All this is to say, go on YouTube and go to, I think it's NCAA Championship. Is that the YouTube channel? And go watch it. I, NCAA something, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with that? The only other thing I want to say is it's crazy how being far back in the race makes you look bad. You saw people coming through looking like they were flailing and hurting. Coming Men coming through the 5K in like 15-0 and they were the slowest runner in the field. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it, It's hard to remember sometimes that the last place person there is faster than anyone you know. He's the fastest kid at his high school. Maybe the fastest kid all time at his high school. Fastest kid in his hometown. One off to a D1 school and took last place and looking slow in that race. And he is faster than anyone, you know, same thing with the women. Yeah. It, it's, it's just crazy how the best people mm -hmm. make the second best people look bad. That's why when we talk, like sometimes we had a few comments about it. Now we don't, we try to be a little more careful, but like talk about our own times for reference and our own goals and all of that. And sort of like slow shaming or speed glorifying how fast in quotes we are uh i i don't know where you would finish but i'm pretty sure i would have probably finished last in that race uh, the back the, the last five sure maybe a few had a real bad day and but like dead last i'm pretty sure me. we both would have been right in the bringing up the caboose right mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. yeah so anyways yeah i made it one year as a d1 runner and only because i was already there mm -hmm. and then I, I washed out and went back down to d3 and was good not great like there are levels to this and we're very aware of where we stand yeah 
Um, all right, you had an idea for this week's episode. We're going to give you know a half hour or so, maybe a little more to uh, to the training Tuesday. A little different, but uh, what are we doing today? We're doing our Thanksgiving episode, and very simply, the things we are most thankful for from a running perspective in our running careers slash running lives. The things that have either been the most impactful or just what we're most thankful for as runners. So not real deep, but maybe it is a little deep. So let's just dive right in. I'll tell you one thing I'm not thankful for this Thanksgiving. Can I guess? Sure. <laughs> no, go, no go guess. Ahead. Go ahead. Why don't you guess? I was going to guess impending cold and snow for how your winter running is going to be. Oh, no. This is me just throwing myself a pity party. Told you before we start recording, I have to get a molar pulled on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Mm. Like if there's a worst day of the year, I didn't even think about this when I scheduled it. And I'm not looking forward to getting a tooth extraction. But like, what do you think I'm doing on Thanksgiving Day now? Like I'm not participating in one of the favorite food holidays. Like I'll just be drinking gravy out of a cup. Like what a crappy day for me to choose getting a tooth pulled out. It's just not cool. And then I'll probably have to be off training for a couple of days. Like just wanted to just throw them. My- You're not going to be able to do a turkey trot? I don't think so. Let alone eat turkey. Like I, it's just not cool. Oh. So I'm not thankful for that, but I'm thankful for good uh, dentists, I guess. Maybe we'll spin. I don't even know. All right. Now I got that out of the way. What are you thankful for, Bracken? Kick this thing off. So going in a very philosophical direction, as a runner, I'm incredibly thankful for my parents, not for genetics, not for what they gave me like as a runner, but because they supported my running and they chose to embrace it. My dad was a D1 quarterback and had a cup of coffee in the NFL. My mom was a volleyball player, softball player, sprinter. My dad's brother was his wide receiver in college at the D1 level. Do you know how difficult that could be in some families to come from a basketball, baseball, football family and have your sons run? That wouldn't necessarily be supported. They would have been put right into football at Mm -hmm. an early age and, and pushed to stay that as long as possible. And if you listen to my episode... You understood that, and it's probably time to go back and listen for any of the new viewers to Kirk and I, our episode on the Get to Know Your Host, but I wasn't pushed into anything but gymnastics early on, and that was to learn how to fall and learn how to be comfortable in space. So I played baseball, I played basketball, but eventually I wasn't good enough to do them at the highest level. I even tried baseball in college and got cut from two different teams. And it'd be really easy for a dad to say, come on, son. You don't need to go out for cross country, but they supported it wholeheartedly and then supported me to try to go after it as a career. So that that's probably the single best thing that I can be thankful for, because I wouldn't be sitting here today if my parents hadn't supported. So, um, what, what, what even is the word, um, like wholeheartedly and without ever second guessing it. They just went all in on learning the sport of distance running and supporting it. I don't believe Pete listens to the podcast, but your mother does, right? So maybe she'll hear this. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she she knew running a bit. Her dad was a cross-country mm. coach. But my dad's side, that wasn't a thing. It was football. Yeah. Well, my father, Pete, does not listen to the podcast either. We both have dads named Pete. Fun fact. Um, my mom will chime in once in a while. Hmm. She'll check in. She barely knows how to listen to a podcast. But, uh, I, you know, if we're going to start from the beginning, um, it starts with my with my uh my dad as as well my mom was a non-athlete i don't think my mom's worked out a day in her life since she got done cheerleading in high school she might go for a walk down the street <laughs> so this 
I was I've been supported by my mother endlessly, but my father was a was a state champ in high school and cross country. Um and he had this old scrapbook uh that his mother kept of his newspaper clippings in the small town of Oconto, Wisconsin. And the front page was uh DeWint and Company Take State. And it was a picture of him kind of disheveled at the finish line. And I would just thumb through this thing. And we all think our dads are heroes, right? At least I, I certainly did when I was younger. And so it was, uh, it was, there wasn't really a question about what I was going to do. I wanted to be like dad. And so, um, so it certainly started there. I would say my mother's probably been more supportive over the years as far as once I picked it up and making sure she stays super, super involved. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I just had a role model riding my bike next to dad when he went out for his runs. He'd hit the local races and I'd go cheer him on, you know, as a kid. Um, so I think it was like a monkey see, monkey do thing. And the expectation mm. of being good uh, was high out of the gates. And so, yeah, but I chose to go out for soccer and my dad supported me. I didn't want to run. I wanted to be cool and go out for soccer. And then I made the team and my dad didn't push back on that. And then I quit and went back to running. So he let me do what I wanted to do as well. He didn't push me like your parents uh, didn't push you into their, their predisposed sport, but I found it anyways. And so, um, I guess I'm sort of stealing your sentiment, but for sure. And I know a lot of our listeners don't have that. A lot of our listeners are, let's call it first generation runners. I have to imagine. So I'd be curious as to where most found their inspiration. I guess I'll go next. This is totally opposite end of the spectrum, Kirk. All right. Yeah. I am grateful, grateful for Bluetooth headphones. (laughs) Tell me more. I spent so many years hating wired headphones rubbing against my skin and slapping against my body and wiggling in my ears while doing runs because I'm not one of those people that believes it's a week to run with music or books or podcasts. I think it's anything that gets you out the door and through a run is worth doing unless it's cocaine. And even then, I probably wouldn't begrudge you a bumper or Adderall if it got you out the door. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, but... I am one of those people, and I don't know if you know this about me, I have very sensitive skin. When I run in summer, I get rashy and itchy many days. Like if a branch even touches me, I get a little like raised bumps and welts Mm -hmm. right there. And once I get sweaty, my skin's, like in a normal day-to-day sense, my skin's fine. But when I get hot and sweaty, it reacts to things. And even the, like the old AirPod headphones that I, not AirPods, earbuds from Apple, like the first gen that came out with the iPod shuffle or whatever the first iPod was, mm-hmm. uh, that just rubbing against my my chest would leave me itchy and red throughout the entire run. And it drove me nuts. And Bluetooth headphones have made my life so much simpler and less itchy. I'm just eternally grateful to them. Any, any one particular uh, brand you want to shout out? Any one particular set of Bluetooth headphones that changed your life? Your first set, probably? My first set was a... I don't even remember what it was called. It was one of those early Kickstarters, and I got them for like $39, and they sometimes worked. But when they worked, life was bliss. I don't even care, because the worst Bluetooth headphone in the world in this day and age is better than anything I had Mm -hmm. growing up and is better than the best wired headphones for me while running. I don't know if you ever... I'll take anything. Went through this phase, but getting like a skip proof sony discman made for running and it had a big velcro Mm -hmm. handhold on the back and so you'd put an entire cd in there and this thing was bomb proof so it was kind of heavy and thick it really locked down hard and you would velcro it so the cd player would be the palm of your hand 
and the Velcro would go around the back of your hand, and then you would have the cord jostling in front of you because the cord moved with the CD player. And I would choose to do that. I would choose to do that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable we did that. You would start wrapping the cord around your fingers to like get it to the length where it was just long enough to hold your arm swing, but not any longer to slap against you. It was there was a there was an art to it and I hate it. It was an art to it. Yeah, I remember and the, the one I bought was like 140 bucks. Like these things weren't cheap either. Like at the time, it was like you paid money, like good money to be able to run with your stupid disc mint. Is that the one with yellow on it? This was I think white and orange or white and yellow. It was hefty. Yeah, I had to save up for this yeah. thing. Yeah. Um yeah. All right. Well, not to get not to get too not so serious, but let's get serious. Um I'm thankful that it exists. That running exists. Oh, low-hanging fruit. That it's – well, let me explain. The That it is a thing that we can do, that I can do. Um, low-hanging fruit for sure. But the way I use running, and I use the word use as like if it were a substance or a drug, is to fix problems very often versus maybe doing something less healthy or productive for myself in particular with uh i would say anxiety which i still struggle with and so i don't know where i would be without it if somebody said you can't run working out in general but nothing hits like the right run does and you know that i mean a good strength session sure that they're all great but if you took it away like i fear that i i fear that i would be in a notably worse place like as a human being and it bleeds into everything for me. And so yes, low hanging fruit, but like, I know some of you have my relationship with running is very healthy. I don't run compulsively because I need to, cause I'm worried about getting fat or doing anything like that, but it is my medicine. And I know most people agree with that in some capacity, but for me, it's like, I think I run on the extreme end where like, it really shores me up, man, when I need it. And sometimes it <clears throat> just pushes off bad tendencies one more day. And for me, that's like super powerful. So the fact that I can do it and the fact that it works more powerful than I would say any drug in general, um, shit. Is there anything more powerful than that? So I don't know. Now you can now you can make fun of my answer if you would like. Well, now I feel like a jerk for scoffing at it because you're right. Yeah. And that was well said. And, and who am I to argue? I met my wife at a track meet. Yeah, screw up, Bracken. I'm doing the job I'm currently doing because running exists. So yes, I guess I'm right <laughs> there with you. All right. Well, you just gave like a all right, like a lighthearted one, and then I just dove way into the tunnel, right? So I'll pull myself back out. <laughs> I'm going to go back and forth here between serious and lighthearted. Okay. So sticking with serious, I am eternally grateful for Spartan Race because I left college aimless. I got into teaching, got into coaching, but I'm a competitor at heart. And if I'm not competing at something, I don't really know what to do with myself. And Spartan Race was there waiting. Mm. I wasn't even out of college a full year before I did my first one. And it introduced me to an entire new way to look at running. I had only really ever looked at running through the track. Uh, what would you call it? The mm -hmm. lens? Yeah. The, the lens of track and field. Everything was about time and intervals and intensity and tenths and hundredths. And that is not healthy or sustainable as an adult, unless you're a pro track runner. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So Spartan Race, the very first one I did, I ran on a trail and I ran off trail and I ran up and down hills and I've never been the same since. So my relationship with OCR and Spartan has gone up and down since, and it's not a huge part of my life as an athlete right now. It's still, a, I would still say 
40% of the athletes I work with are in some way connected to OCR, but I am not standing here today without Spartan Race, and I wouldn't have the long-term love of running that I developed because of trails. I didn't love running, and I rarely liked it until after graduating college. It was not the running that sustained me. And so Spartan gave me a version of running that allowed me to fall in love with running. And now I love all forms of running. So liberating when you come from the track and everything is you are your time, you are your pace, you are your result Mm -hmm. down to the hundredth. Like that's who you are. You get labeled sometimes in like like the coolness scale in the community by what your resume. Social standing. Yeah, your social standing can depend on how fast you are objectively is so liberating going to the trails and then finding mm-hmm. Spartan for me too. Like just like so freeing to get out of that little box. It's a wonderful box. Don't get me wrong. Like it's not to belittle it or make it sound toxic. It's great. At the same time, after you do it for years, I bet you that was just really freeing for you was for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, looking back, there were signs that I was meant to be on the trails. Whenever someone got to choose a run, I'd choose the rolliest run or the the run that included the most path or trail, but I didn't really, you're not thinking about that. So I didn't notice it. That's just what I defaulted to without even really ever realizing it. And then Spartan opened my eyes to there's this, there's a way to enjoy running. This is wild. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I went to a sport that included less running than the sport I was in, in order to find running. Hmm. I wouldn't, I don't even know if I was a runner in college. I was an 800 meter track athlete. I ran every single day, but I wasn't a runner. I ran track. Mm-hmm. It was like not the same world. So it was super healthy and long-term sustainable for me to find that. So, and I wouldn't have done that. Maybe I would have, but the, this path wouldn't have happened without Spartan Race. In track season, were you running much further than four to six miles at a crack? Because well, you did you did dip up to the 15. So you probably were going for eight miles. Six to seven. Yeah. You weren't going further than that though, right? You weren't doing any sort of. No, I trained, we trained as four, eight guys. Okay. Right. Cause I remember our 800 guys would go up for like four miles. So my long run during the week was seven. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Seven was the longest I'd run during season. Okay. Yeah. I think if we had an off, which is kind of funny, huh? We had an off weekend, we'd go 10 for a long run in season, but we'd work up to like 14 mile long runs in the off season as a miler, but we didn't go further than mm. that, but yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Um, so I left Campbell. I, this is kind of interesting sidebar. I left Campbell university having run some 70 mile weeks, which was enormous <clears throat> for me. I came back from Campbell and then from the end of, so from May, 2006 until I ran cross country in 2009, I didn't run a run longer than probably eight miles as a college runner. Wow. Seven for sure. I can't think of an eight miler, but one might have slipped in there (laughs) if I got lost. And yet I spent, I would say 50% of my days destroyed. Right. Because of the intensity. In and out of ice bath. Always. Yeah. Because it was just intensity. It was three track sessions spiked up per week. Like I ran in spikes three times a week. That's I can you even imagine that right now? No. My lower legs would be shot. I remember starting my off season winter progression one year with 20 by 200 on the indoor track. That was my off-season build. Started with 20 by 200 on a 200-meter track. That was the world. So it was just like, that's not running. That's practicing to race. Mm -hmm. So entirely different, totally different world. It is running. Very different version of running. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could. we could get into more nuances with that. But um, I am thankful for- I suppose I should- 
get out of the weeds. Well, no, I, I think we could, I could talk about that for hours, I feel like, but I'm thankful for, uh, high stack height sh- super shoes. <laughs> what? That was exactly high stack shoes was the next thing I was going Come to on. say. Look at us. Well, yeah. As somebody who's been somewhat injury prone, do super shoes, the right super shoe for you help you run faster? It does, I believe. At the same time, what the right super shoe, you have some that are very firm and a little lower stack height, and they can create some damage after you run hard. It has nothing to do with the fact that I feel efficient in them. It has everything to do with the fact that I don't take as much pounding in them. The Nike Alpha Fly, for example, for me is like, you know, as a 40 year old who's injury prone, who, you know, fatigue can add up just a little quicker. They save me. I can run more before I need to back off because of damage or what my it does to my legs the next day or two. The super shoe and particularly high stack height has uh, enhanced my recovery game. And I'll take anything I can get right now as far as minimizing damage so I can keep mm-hmm. training. And so um, speed aside, even if the super shoe made you know faster, what it does for the recovery and the damage mitigation is unbelievable. Not all. Like if you take the Nike Vaporfly, for example, that don't do crap for me. In fact, I might take more damage from that super shoe. But at the same time, the Alpha Fly is like, mm. saves me. So uh, very thankful for that. I don't know if I would have been a thankful for that years ago, but I think now I certainly am. Yeah. My gateway drug was the Hoka Challenger ATR. It was basically just the cliff, an early Clifton, like a Clifton 2, with a little bit of extra rubber on the bottom for mm-hmm. the trail. And that took me to struggling in Colorado to being able to run downhills in Colorado. It changed the trails I could run on. When I first went out there, I was running a lot of 60 and 70 mile weeks to get ready for the volume of trying to be a pro athlete. But I was sticking to the baby trails because I couldn't do vert because getting back down the mountain wrecked me for days. And as soon as I went to Hoka's, I could descend and I don't care if they were a crutch. They allowed me to do more work. And my life's not been the same since. I have not once since that first time in probably 2014 been without a high stack shoe in my in my quiver because it allows me to do things that I wouldn't be able to recover from normally. And I understand all the naysayers about high stack. That's fine. But for me personally, they have given me a new lease on volume and recoverability. Yeah. My first introduction uh, introduction to high stack height was the Hoka as well. Hoka Bondi. I just was for a road shoe. Mm. And that thing is a tank of a shoe. And uh, same thing. I was like, oh my God, I'm not completely ruined uh, afterwards. And that's where that started for me. I have athletes. I don't know how they do it. And I don't know if you do too. Um, running in like their VJ shoes, every, like on a Thursday midweek long run chasing vert on every long run, they just go out for two or three hours. They're running in like a pair of VJs. And although there's a time and a place, I always think like, I don't think you know what you're missing. If you get in the right shoe on the trails, like instead of you always complain about your calves and Achilles, like here's probably why. Anyways, the amount of people that run in those minimal shoes blows my mind. I don't think I can get away with it regularly. I used to. That's what I I mean. That I, I get it because until you know, the other side exists, you don't know better. Mm. I used to do my long runs in Colorado and the Innovate X-Talon 212s. Ooh, it's a light shoe. And I would do my quick stuff in the X-Talon 190s. That was the difference. And I would wear the Nike Lunar Racer for my daily mileage. Mm. All light shoes. I couldn't do that right now. But it, yeah, all light. But as soon as I got away from that, it didn't change my ability to perform in the run. 
but I could move the next day without pain. Mm-hmm. That was the big difference. What shoe are you really into right now to help save your legs? You know what shoe I'm really into right now, Kirk? What? The Hoka Tecton X one. Oh, you even wearing it on the roads? I was not. No, I haven't. Mm. I, I was not a fan of the Tecton. I thought it was okay, but I didn't think it was, maybe it was my first uh, perception of it. I was hoping for some super shoe attributes, but on the trail and it's not. Yep. And it was kind of firm and I didn't want that. I was used to the speed goat, but as it broke in and as I changed my expectations of what that shoe is, it has really grown on me. For like uh like it's not a racer for me. <clears throat> me either. But it does shockingly well on technical terrain. It really protects my feet because of the plates in there on sharp rocks. It's surprisingly competent downhill. I just like it. Mm-hmm. For like a nice and steady long run first. on terrain. So this is the first Hoka. Yeah. This is the first Hoka I've ever had where it had a break-in period. And I think that was part of it. Mm. It needed like 100 miles to really start coming into its own. And I usually don't have much tolerance for that. Mm. All right. I was just curious there. My my eternity eternal gratefulness will be towards the original nike alpha fly that shoe mm-hmm. i will try to buy that shoe 10 years from now not any updated models not any new models that <laughs> model is what's needed um i think i went last with the i stole yours but do you have anything that comes to mind um yes so i am this is gonna sound funny but i am so grateful for washing out a d1 <laughs> I was a a big fish in a medium pond in high school and I was was a little bit unprepared for how good the world was and going down to Campbell University and the smallest D1 you can find but getting to see real D1 schools all around you and showing up to those meets and finding out what I didn't know was really really important for me setting expectations as a runner and seeing what the difference really is between okay runners, good runners and great runners. So A it was a real I think everyone needs to just get your butt kicked periodically in life. I think it's very healthy mm-hmm. <laughs> for people. And if you're not an athlete, it's hard to find a good way to get that done that's not like destructive in your life. Right. You don't want to get your butt kicked, like destroyed emotionally in a relationship or at work mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. I think it's one of the best things about sports. Like mm-hmm. I needed to be humbled. And also it showed me that the biggest difference between good runners, average runners and great runners is not foot speed. It's not turnover. It's staying power. Oh, stay powers king. And that was really, really important for me to see. Mm. That I could hang with these really great runners in short intervals. And that was it. Yeah. And so like at our core attribute, I could I could run just as fast as them. And I was not even within like two or three deviations of them as a 10K runner. So that th- those two things were so important for me long-term as a runner. Expectations and realizing what really matters as a runner. I think getting humbled... Really good and humbled a few times. That's something you care about early stages. It's the best thing. As long as you can come back to it and not let it deter you, it's probably the best thing for your mm-hmm. long-term relationship with with anything. Um, I think I know your answer to this, but um, what? how do you feel about participation trophies and medals? How do you feel about those oh, in this day and age? They're not for me. You think kids need to get their butt kicked and not get a participation trophy, or do they still need a pat on the back and an orange slice? They definitely need a pat on the back and an orange slice. Mm-hmm. I think partici- participation awards for kids is fantastic. As long as there is also a shinier, brighter reward for winning. Yep. I think that it's important to recognize that showing up and trying hard is really commendable. Mm. And I also think it's important to recognize greatness at any any walk of life. We can't, we need to be special without sports, but we all shouldn't be the same level of special at every activity. Otherwise it dilutes 
like a true sense of scope of what the world is. Mm-hmm. If any of that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. I agree with you. One of the few things that like, for example, Spartan race gets right. And I know you throw out your medals and often even your plaques that you've won, but here, here's your medal. You've completed the task. That's your participation trophy. Mm-hmm. And there's a bigger, shinier object to be attained if you place, for example. So I agree with you, but yeah. um, I think participation tro- trophies across the board alone. Um, I don't know. I think it, you don't want to live in delusion, and sometimes it's easy for kids to do that. So I think there's a fine line, right? Um, all right. We don't need to get into that too far. I am thankful. I am thankful for Strava, but I'm thankful for Strava's Ooh. fitness score specifically. Um, so, and I think it used to be called the Suffer Score. Now I think it's your fitness score. What is it? Your effort? I'm going to look it up. I just did a, what is it? They label that damage. I can't even tell you. I did mile repeats today. Let's see what it says. It says my relative effort. That's what I, they have a relative effort score. Relative effort. That tells you how hard you worked that day. And I will say that that one feature, when I look at the, the week as a whole, has helped me gauge progression really, really well. So I can take a look at what I've done this week and it can add up my relative effort and say, hey, you worked 300 points of effort this week. This is a notable bump you might want to consider chilling the rest of the week. Or, oh my God, I worked very hard last week. I swung too hard and overreached. Maybe I should, based on my heart rate data, this is coming from my heart rate data paired with my Strava telling me how hard I worked this week, allows me to make decisions the next week based on a very objective measure of just how much output I put out the previous week. And for me, that's been really helpful. Hmm. It's been helpful. I'm my sixth, starting my sixth week back to running after taking a week off. And I've made it a point to gradually increase my Strava relative effort score for the week. And here I am six weeks in, I just popped a decent workout this morning and I'm not over, I'm not reaching too far too early. So the Strava relative effort score, and then it sums up your weekly total. It's all I look at now to keep myself in check or know, Hey, it's time to push or, Hey, it's time to back off. Um, been a huge tool. That's simple. I like that. I'm going to, I wasn't planning on doing Strava. Not that we were planning any of this, but I'm going to say Strava as well, but a different feature, segments. Mm. Segments for me, especially as a trail runner, have really, really simplified the way I can approach before, during, and after workouts. Because it's no longer this, I'm doing this figure eight loop on the cross-country course, and I'm hitting this uphill and this downhill, and I have to hit split on my watch every time I start and finish one. And then after the workout, go down and try to remember and match up. Mm. All right, at 11 minutes in, I think I hit the first hill roughly. So now every third split should be an uphill and every third after that. You don't have to do that anymore. I just press start on my GPS watch and I run what I'm going to run. And as soon as I'm done, it tells me every other time I've ever run every segment on that. And I can create my hill, uphill, downhill, up and downhill in both orders, segments for all my workouts. And then it just has this historical context for everything I've ever done on that. And that is the feature I use more than anything else for hill reps and interval work is the segment feature. Mm. I still hit my lap button. I can't help myself. You don't? Sometimes I do. I mean, I, I shouldn't say sometimes. I hit it. I check it at the top compared to so that I know during the workout how I'm doing. But there's no guesswork after the fact. Yeah. It just automatically does it for me. Especially hill reps for some reason. That's probably where I, I lean on it the most. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Also thankful for GPS watches. What a game changer. Tell you what. Um, 100%. Unbelievable. 
All right. Was that? Did you steal mine, or do you? Did does that count as yours or mine? Or I think you should. I stole. I piggybacked. Mm-hmm. Okay. These two are at odds for each other. So I already said I'm super thankful for trails. So I'm also going to say I am super thankful for treadmills. Mm. The moment I bought a treadmill when we had Brayden, who is our our oldest, soon as I got a treadmill, my life got better and easier. And I've never been without a treadmill one moment of my life since. And the ability to. If I have one hour free and I'm sitting on the couch, I can get 59 minutes of work in. Run upstairs, put my clothes on, run downstairs, pop a shoe on, and start running. You can, it's just the most time efficient running machine on earth and you can do anything on it other than downhill work and even that you could do gradual downhill work Mm -hmm. so other than bomb downhills you can do almost anything i guess technical terrain you can get 95 percent of the way there on a treadmill and even though i don't love the treadmill always i love the treadmill for what it can do yeah me too it gets a it gets a bad rap I still get athletes who will check in and be like, yeah, I went on the treadmill today. I know I'm a wimp, but it was raining out. And like, there's this like general sort of sentiment about you're like a loser or lame if you choose the treadmill. But over the years, I've changed my tune with that. I don't care at all. I think if it gets you out the door and it gets the work done and you're not relying on it every day, oh, you know, if you're running on terrain and you're going to race nasty Spartan races, then yeah, you might need to get out in the winter and run in some crappy snow. That's going to help you. But if that's not you... Like and it's snowing out, and you race high rocks, which is on a flat yeah. concrete, you know, track. Okay, hit your treadmill, not hit your life. You'll get more out of the session. So I agree with you. Exactly. Um, well, we don't want to make this training Tuesday too long, so I think we just need to say the inevitable here. Should we just do the next cliche thing? Sure. Which is thankful for it had to be said at some point. This podcast, each other, our listeners, what it has done for us in the past. Well, are we going on almost four, four years. years in January? Holy smokes. I'm going to take you guys back in time to pre-pandemic, pre-podcast. Kirk DeWint went into the gym with clients at 6 a.m. four days a week. Kirk DeWint stayed at the gym three or four nights a week till 8.30 p.m. with clients, individual. I ran some coaching, of course. I had you know roughly 15, 20 athletes or people in general fitness online, but... I had early alarms. I had late nights home. I had Chipotle bowls right before bed because that's all I had time for because I had to get up again at five the next morning. And um, not that I don't get up early now and not that I don't run even a busier or crazier schedule, but I'm in the gym a third of the time I was before we started this podcast. I make the majority of my living run coaching and talking into a microphone. Um, And I'm way less stressed over it. And it can be done on my time. And that's all unexpected, right? I don't get home at nine o'clock at night anymore because I'm not training clients in the gym late. Do you know how thankful I am for that? How thankful my wife is for that, that we can have dinner at a decent hour every evening and I don't have to look at the clock at 830 at night already and be like, well, I got to get up in eight hours. We got to go right to bed every single day and living on just 20 minute power naps, all that. I don't mean to paint that picture, but that's the, the, of a busy personal trainer. That is the life mornings and evenings and some middays. So anyways, I still work a lot of hours, probably more than I should. And I work weekends a lot because our athletes race on the weekend and there's always gray area to, to transformation. But with that said, like my career is transformed because of this podcast and coaching athletes. And I run notably more athletes. Now I'd say I'm feel much more rewarding through that. And then, um, being able to make a living doing something that doesn't feel like work all of the time, pretty lucky. So I, I know I, I'm kind of stealing a lot of your probably sentiments mm-hmm. as well, but um, God, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I'll just put it through my my lens then. Yeah. Let's flash back to where Lisa had kind of left off with my and where you and I had talked about our financial journey. When I left Colorado with the family and said, we can no longer try to make this off of just running and some coaching on the side. And then a year later, I left leaderboard and Lisa and I filed for our LLC and started our own coaching company. One year into that, we bought our home and then COVID hit Mm. and COVID hit. And on the day Spartan Race canceled their season, I lost 50% of our clients. Within two weeks of that, I would say 50% were gone. And then marathons, everything started dropping out. And by month two, we had lost 70% of our clients. Anyone who is there just to get to a race or to do a series of races, not for a lifestyle, but for performance at a race, they left. And they were watching their budget so as we well new with mortgage. work potential changes and all of that. Yeah. Everybody was watching costs and that's factored in too. Yeah. So we had a new mortgage. We're trying to make our own company work. We have no supplemental income and we lost 70% of our income. Oh. Over the course of roughly nine weeks. And about five months later, this podcast caught traction and I started gaining back clients. And not only did we gain back clients, but we started drawing in, as I'm sure you've seen, a different clientele. And maybe it was because we started it during the pandemic and it was people looking for lifestyle changes, but it was no longer 70% of my clients wanting, hey, get me to this race. And 30% of them like, hey, let's let's build a running lifestyle. It was now the reverse. Now people were coming on who were interested in what we were talking about, interested in long-term development, and suddenly there was stability. And you guys filled my coaching ranks back up to where we were, and then, you know, we've moved past it now. So all those things aside, the 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 personal validation, the fulfillment of getting to work with individuals and being able to work with one of my best friends multiple times per week, being able to do a job that, like Kirk said, doesn't feel like a job 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Some days it certainly does. Many days it does not. We get to do it from home. I get to spend time with my wife during the day. All of that aside, without this podcast, we did not have the savings built up after we had just emptied them for a home to make it many more months before before I had to do something else. Mm-hmm. When I was building the website, I was taking breaks and filling out teaching applications. That's how low, that's how dicey it was getting. That I was, we were really trying to push on this and I was building my safety net up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, this doesn't work. And you guys helped give this a second lease on life. And now Kirk and I are both in a place where we are just happy mm-hmm. and we are stable and life is much less stressed. So this podcast was really my saving grace during COVID because it it helped us move into what we're doing now. Yeah. I didn't know about the teaching applications. Yep. I mean, that's, you know, that says everything one would need to know there. It's interesting. I quit my corporate job in 2010 and I went on this live, um, live talk show called Twin Cities Live. It was back in my bachelor days and they wanted me on a get, as, as a guest host. So I actually hosted the live episode and we had a psychic on who I actually really respect. And we, it, maybe those don't go hand in hand for some people, but I really like this woman. And she told me, she's like, you don't see it now, but like, you know, she told me basically to quit my job in different words. And I went and quit the next day. And then she, literally, and she kept, she said, what you're doing is, you know, you've walked into the wall three times, like take the door, whatever that means to you with your career. And I was like, okay, that means quit. Right. And she said, I don't know, you know what it's going to be, but you're going to teach people. She said to me, you're going to teach people. You're meant to teach people. That's what you're going to do. And I never even really felt like I was teaching people in my personal training job, which I then built and that 
whole thing, which has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. I taught people, but I didn't feel like I taught people like this, like we do together. And so maybe maybe Jody Levon, the psychic, maybe she was onto something. I don't know. But I didn't see it coming out like this is what I'm getting at. And so that's been kind of kind of fun. Mm-mm. Yeah. So I'm going to teach people. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm beyond thankful for this podcast, for you, for the lifestyle we live. And it's the kind of thing that like, we can be 80. Crusty old men talking about running. If there's anyone around left to listen to us, this is a long-term thing and I can't wait to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Talk about getting lucky choosing a life sport, really. Or even if you mm-hmm. came to it later in life, I think it just challenged people to like, Running can seem burdensome and those early alarms can seem like a pain and you take away from family time or other stuff. I got a long run Saturday morning, so I don't do social plans with my friends Friday. All these things that could seem like negatives, but like if you sit down and think what it really has done for you, I don't know. I think it's good to regroup with that once a year. So I'm glad you brought you brought this up today because that's that we were going to do another Q&A and Bracken's like, nah, we're thankful today, Kirk. I was like, yeah, we are thankful, aren't we? That's right. Mm-hmm. We're thankful. How do you want to wrap this up? Well, we have a great interview for you. We have a great interview drop in Friday. Mm-hmm. Ron Mann, Matt Baxter, NAU legacy and history of their program. It's every runner's dream to talk with coaches and athletes like that. Yeah, and Ron Mann, um, talk about a good guy. He gets a little choked up a couple times just talking about the legacy of the program. And pretty cool because NAU is yeah. as good as it gets. It was like, man, talk about a, people who care is pretty cool. So, yeah, you're going to have to listen to that Friday. that it? Kirk Bracken. Last thing, I have my I have my turkey trot this week. Oh, you're racing that I have run four times. I'm gonna go do that same one. I've done it four times, same course. I haven't been healthy enough to do it in three years. I have not yet made it to fall in three years, able to be healthy enough to run a five mile road race, and I get to do it this week. Yeah, buddy. Barring injury in the next two days, <laughs> so I'm excited a to do it. And B, to find out where is my threshold right now? Where do I lie in a five-mile semi-hilly road race? What do you think your ceiling is right now? Give me the 30-second pitch on what you think pace you could hold in a semi-hilly road race. Ceiling, not floor. Ceiling, 530. Okay. That'd be great. Floor, 550. Okay. I'll be curious. I'm gonna. You're going to have to share that immediately whenever we hop on this thing next. I'll be curious. I'm going to not wear super shoes because I never did in the past. And just keep everything the same. How much elevation is in the five miles? Hopefully they don't divert us off course this year. Yeah, no kidding. How say? much elevation is in the five miles? Uh, I don't know because I don't think, I think only once have I run this with GPS. Mm. My guess is in five miles, there's 200 feet. Okay. That's notable, I think. Well, I'll look forward to an update. The last time I ran this was 2019. And? I think. Uh, I tried wearing road flats. I was in Adidas Adios, probably fives, Mm -hmm. fours. And I was getting twinge cramps in my quads and calves by a mile, like three and a half. I was very out of shape and very not ready for pounding. So it can't be worse than that. All right. Well, you're out doing that. I'll be uh, slurping gravy through a straw, enjoying my Thanksgiving. How's that sound? Oh, well, good luck with that. Uh All right. I know you're looking up some data there, but it doesn't matter. All right. I'll find it when I find it. Um, It says 147 feet on this one. Okay, It's notable. This one was, uh, my title is snow and ice equals OCR training for the win. We hit a, we hit a bike path for about a mile and a half that wasn't clear. Mm. And that's where I separate. I I held 543 that year. You win? You won it? I I did because I could run in the snow and ice. Mm. In road shoes and other people couldn't. They were faster on the roads, but I built up a little gap there. But that 543 is not going to cut it this year. No, I'm going to have to run 530 to win. So better hit your ceiling. 
No, you're gonna have to run five O to win. Ah. There are some runners here. <laughs> Winning's not why I'm there. Uh. I'm there to celebrate making it to fall healthy. That's right. I approve. All right. Well, good destiny to you, Bracken. Uh, and folks, thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday. I'll see you.